My firm belief in the gospel, my teaching, proceeds from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. This is all of all the China to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. So I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as those submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. For the mission of the church is only to be the church, and not to become a part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, Spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. These are the words of Wang Yi, a Chinese pastor who currently is sitting in prison because of his leadership of his church, because of the gospel that he was preaching in China. He was arrested in the fall of 2018 for his faithful ministry in an underground Chinese church, and he continues to sit in jail today, to the best of our knowledge. He wrote that letter, that was a short part of a very long letter that he wrote to his church family, to his personal family, to encourage them to stand strong in his absence. What truth does a man like that need while sitting in a Chinese jail for preaching the gospel? What truth does his church need to be reminded of? Or what about the Christian who's just trying to faithfully follow Jesus in this culture, but feels the suffocating pressures to compromise in small ways, like changing her social media avatars during certain times of the year, perhaps, in order to seem normal and respectable and even humane or decent in the eyes of her corporate employer? What does she need to hear? What about you? What truth do you need to hear when you're tempted to compromise your Christian convictions? Is there a truth that will sustain you, enable you to persevere, and keep you from sinning against your Christian conscience for the sake of an easier home life or work life or school environment? 
Maybe you're not a Christian, and you're here because you're curious about why your Christian friend is so weird. Why they won't just go with the flow in our culture. Why they have such strange, even countercultural convictions. Our portion of the Bible from, uh, for today's sermon provides the encouraging word that that Chinese pastor needs to hear. And that his church family needs to hear from him. It provides the encouraging word that the tempted toward compromise Christian needs to hear, and perhaps the explanation for why your Christian friend is so strange. This portion is Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you or underneath you, this would be on page 967. 967. The Apostle John is writing this passage to remind believers that though evil forces seem to be winning the day, like the evil forces that would throw a wonderful Christian pastor in China in prison because he's telling people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there are evil forces that seem to be winning the day. That was the case in John's day while he was sitting in a prison himself in the island of Patmos because he would not be quiet about who Jesus was and what Jesus had accomplished. But this book reminds us that God is in control, that the ultimate victory over sin belongs to Jesus, the Lamb of God, and to all those who will put their faith in him. Our passage today provides heavenly perspective on all that is happening here on earth right now. And as I read this passage in a moment, we'll read all of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5, relatively short chapters, you'll notice that John shares many intriguing details. And I want to preempt the temptation, before we even read those, to get caught up in those details or distracted by those details. I want to urge you to focus on the main point of the passage, which we'll explain as we go along here. But these details are intended to draw our eyes to the main point, not take our eyes off of the main point. So please follow along as I read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was 
and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This passage was written to fortify suffering Christians. It was written to expand the viewpoint of readers so that they will see beyond the visible realities that are in front of them right now, the problems that you're facing right now, the heartache, the suffering, the persecution, This passage was written to answer the question of true authority to express who is actually ruling. We're not going to have some puppet ruler here. We're going to see who the real ruler is. The passage we just read tells us this truth. Jesus is the worthy Lamb of God who has all authority. Jesus is the worthy Lamb of God who has all authority. So what does this passage teach us about Jesus as the worthy lamb? The passage actually starts a step before that. So chapter 4 tells us 
that God the Creator is seated in majesty. We need to have this foundation before we can see what it even means that there is a Lamb who is worthy. So chapter 4 tells us that God, is the, God the Creator is seated in majesty. Perhaps as I read this, you were wondering, is this something that's still to happen in the future, or is this something that has al- you know, already happened or is happening right now? And I would tell you that I believe this is a, uh, a situation, a vision of something that has already occurred. This isn't a future vision of something that we're waiting for. It's a past reality that has continuing effects for the moment right now and for the rest of eternity. And I'll tell you the reason I believe that, and that is that uh, we're seeing a second vision here from the Apostle John. We saw the first one last week of these seven churches. But toward the end of that passage in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Jesus himself says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. So when Jesus gave this vision, he's already seated on his throne next to the Father, God the Father, and he's communicating this vision for us to know that this is the reality of what's happening right now, this, this, of, of the fact that he is already ruling. God is already seated in majesty and Jesus there with him. Very possibly then, this passage is describing the moment of when Jesus ascended to heaven after completing his earthly ministry and uh, he told his disciples right before ascending to heaven, I have received all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he ascended, and perhaps this is that moment of, that, of celebration after he returned to the throne room of God. But you see in, in chapter 4, verse 1, that, that John heard the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. That takes you back to chapter 1, where Jesus, the Son of Man, was giving... Uh, his word to John, who was suffering in prison, and is telling us that this is Jesus himself giving this vision and calling John up to heaven to see what is going to happen, what the future holds, and so forth. And it tells us in chapter 4, verse 2, that he was in the Spirit. This happens a couple of times in the book of Revelation, and each time it's just John receiving a vision and saying that he's Uh, receiving a vision as Ezekiel did and as Isaiah did in the Old Testament, that he's in line with all these other prophets who are receiving a direct word from God that God's people need to hear. Verse 2 tells us that when he was in the Spirit, he saw a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. But notice there, he doesn't tell us who that person sitting on the throne is, and he doesn't really describe the person on the throne. He describes what's happening around the throne. And I think he's doing that as a way of reminding us that, as John himself told us in the Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. John repeats that in the book of 1 John, chapter 4. No one has ever seen God. And so John himself is saying, I saw a throne and it was amazing, but I didn't actually see who it was that was sitting on the throne because no one has ever seen the one sitting on the throne. John 1, again, goes on to say that the the one who has come, Jesus, reveals the one who is sitting on the throne. Verse 3 describes that what this throne looked like. And again, this is where the details could overwhelm us or maybe could raise lots of questions. And the main point of these details, I think, is to tell you God is seated in glory and in majesty and indescribable beauty. And that's what's supposed to draw your attention. And even verse 5 that describes this lightning and this thunder, this is a a phrase that's going to show up as we go along in the book of Revelation several more times, always as a way of drawing your attention to 
wow, God is really big and really powerful and deserves every bit of your attention. And it reminds me of a uh, storm that we experienced this summer when we were down in Florida as part of our vacation. We went down to New Orleans for the SBC meeting and then went down to Florida for a couple days. And one of the nights we were there, there was in a lightning storm that I have never seen anything like. And other people who were there that I've talked to that, that evening said they had never seen anything like it either. It was as if it was the middle of the day. So that level of brightness outside and it was that sustained level of lightning for hours. It was unbelievable. And it's as if that's what this passage is describing here, just immense flashings of lightning and rumblings of thunder, getting your attention and saying, there is someone seated on the throne, and he deserves all of my attention right now. God the Creator is seated in majesty. Around this throne, it says there are 24 thrones and there are elders seated on these thrones. These are probably angelic figures representing either the people of God or representing the, the various of priests that are described in the book of Leviticus and, and elsewhere in the, uh, like in First Chronicles in the Old Testament. But essentially saying that these people have their own level of authority given by God, but they are confronted with the glory of God themselves and they are falling on their faces before God. Verse 5 describes these seven spirits. And this we can really only interpret in light of other passages of this book, Revelation. And it's a reminder of the fact that uh, this is the Holy Spirit of God. And it's not that there are seven Holy Spirits of God, but the number seven there, as it does throughout the book of Revelation, typically reveals like a fullness, an immensity, a, a sense that, that, it, that God is everywhere and seeing all things and is all-powerful. So it's describing the quality of the Holy Spirit, not that there are seven different spirits of God. This entire passage is significantly building off of several Old Testament texts, Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, as we'll see in a few moments here, but most prominently probably Daniel chapter 7. This is a passage that we would say is, <clears throat> excuse me, is a load-bearing passage of the Bible. It's one that the rest of the New Testament writers build on over and over again. Jesus himself went back to Daniel 7 over and over again to talk about himself. Why? Because it shows that Jesus himself is divine. This passage is putting Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is worthy of all Authority, who has all authority, is worthy of all praise, putting him on equal standing with God the Father. That's what Daniel 7 is doing. That's what this passage is referring to over and over again. I won't even take the time to show you, but essentially if you read through Daniel 7, you'll notice all kinds of connections. Verses 6 and 7 describe these four living creatures that are around God's throne. Again, very strange, but probably what these creatures are doing is just representing the whole created order of animate life. That God has created, of course, you, you saw a man in there, you saw lions in there, and sometimes we refer to lions as the king of the jungle, oxen being the strongest beast of the field, eagles being these powerful birds that soar over the earth. And essentially it seems like what John is doing is saying there are, there are creatures, there are angel, angelic beings that are drawing our attention to how powerful God is in creation itself, which is certainly a significant feature of this uh, chapter, chapter 4. You see these creatures falling before God. You see the angels in verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And I just want to ask you, who or what do you fall down before? 
Is your cell phone worthy of your worship? Is your team worthy of your worship? Is your job so all-consuming that it deserves all your attention? This pastor would tell you there is nothing in the universe that deserves you falling down in front of them or in front of it. Verse 11, backing up into verse 10, they cast their crowns, these elders do, these angelic beings most likely, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy because you created all things by your will. And you've probably heard the phrase, you had one job. Maybe you've seen some funny memes about this idea. Uh, Maybe someone said this phrase sarcastically to you recently. You had one job. And usually it's being said in the sense of, and you didn't do it. Like you had one and you couldn't even pull that off. Maybe you said it recently or at least thought it and mercifully, because you're a Christian, didn't say it to the cashier or the the food service representative or whoever else you might have in mind. But did you know that you were made with one job? You were made not to make your parents proud, not to be a law-abiding citizen, not to prove your doubters wrong, or to provide for your family. All of those Tasks are noble. It's good to be a law-abiding citizen to make your family proud and so forth. You had one job, and it was to worship God. Chapter 4 tells you you were made to worship God who sits on his throne. And you do that job. You were made to do this job. You do that job by showing up for a worship service and engaging your heart and your mind. You also do that job every single day by making hundreds of minor choices that you don't even realize you're making in the moment about every single kind of detail of your life. You're making the minor decision, the seemingly minor decision, to not crush somebody with your words, whether they live in your house or work in the grocery store. You're making a minor decision to not fantasize about something that God forbids. And you're making these little decisions, stacking them one on top of another, the way that you build bricks and you lay one level and you lay the next level and the next level. And the minor decisions that you're making day after day and every single moment of every single day is how you worship this God who is seated on His throne. This is how you cast your crown before Him. This is how you fall on your face before Him. And you know what? You have this one job in this life and you will also have this same job in the next life. You will either glorify Him in His radiant, magnificent presence or you will glorify Him by exposing His perfect justice and holiness by suffering under His righteous wrath forever. And that is what we all deserve to do. That is not the surprise of the Bible. It's not surprising when you read the Bible that we deserve hell. The plot twist, the part you didn't anticipate, is that anybody is spared the wrath of God. And I want to tell you how the Bible says you can be spared. You can be spared the wrath of God by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And that's because He on the cross, when he was slain, absorbed the wrath of God. 
And when you believe that he's the one who paid the price that you deserve to pay before this righteous God, and when you turn from your sin and realize that I am a rebel before this God, I deserve death and hell, when you turn in faith to Jesus, he graciously and freely forgives you and gives you new life. And so if you have never turned in faith to Jesus, we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church want to urge you to do that today. Stop trying to fulfill God's law on your own, to do good enough so that he'll look the other way or he'll sweep your sin under the rug. He cannot do that because he is this perfectly holy, radiant God. And so we urge you to trust in him today. And if you have any questions about that, we would love for you to catch any one of our members and just ask them what this is all about, how you can be certain you know that you will go to heaven when you die. But every job that you work, whether it's a paid job for an employer or an unpaid job like changing your children's diapers or serving your grandchildren or washing your clothes or cleaning your house or cutting your grass, every single one of those jobs is intended to glorify this God who sits on his throne. Every class you take is about more than earning credits toward a degree. It's about learning more about the world God has made and preparing you to serve him in it with every day you have. Even if for some reason you already know everything that that class covers, you glorify God by showing respect to the teacher and dignity to the fellow classmates sitting there with you. Every sin you commit is about more than defiling your own conscience or setting a bad example for your family or friends or fellow church members. It's about robbing God of the glory that he deserves as the only being who has always existed and who has made everything by his will. God the creator is seated in majesty on his throne. But what's astonishing is that this God before whom the angels throw their crowns before him, these elders cast their crowns, the angels fall before him and cover their faces, this God, God the creator, gives all authority to Jesus. That's what chapter 5 tells us. God the creator gives all authority to Jesus. This is what makes him the worthy lamb, the one who deserves our praise and uh, adoration. Chapter 5 says that in God's right hand, again, doesn't describe God, in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne, we know that to be God, there's a scroll written within and without, on the back, sealed with seven seals. And this scroll represents God's saving and judging work. It it describes, it represents his decree for all of human history. In other words, if this scroll isn't opened, God's plan isn't done, isn't accomplished, isn't carried out. That sounds bad. So there needs to be somebody who has the authority to carry out God's saving and judging and God-glorifying plan. There are these seven seals, and we'll see what those represent and what those do, essentially, in the next passage, but essentially you think of like a wax seal that holds that scroll shut so no one can read what's inside of it, so that nothing can can be revealed about it, which means so that God's plan isn't carried out. But those seven seals, again, we'll see those in a few weeks, all that this tells us, all this passage is telling us is there's got to be somebody who can open this scroll. It's not optional. This isn't something where it's like, oh, the scrolls can't be opened, no big deal. Things will go on. No, this passage is telling us without this going on, it changes everything. It's clearly a problem, which is why John is weeping in verse 4. 
because no one was worthy to open this scroll. One of the elders, one of those 24 elders said, hold on a second. Don't weep. Just look. Over there, there's a lion. John turns around looking for a lion, and he sees a lamb. This lion is coming from Genesis 49, which is just a prophecy that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would be the king, who would reign the way a lion reigns over the field. There is a lion who is mighty, who is powerful, who is glorious. He deserves worship. Jesus is that lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah from Genesis 49. But that's not what John sees when he turns around. It's not what he sees that causes him to stop weeping. He turns around and he sees a lamb. And this lamb was slain, representing the fact that Jesus was crucified, that he shed his blood. He was that Passover lamb from the book of Exodus. He was that sacrificial lamb from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, who was slaughtered for the sins of his people. He conquered sin and evil by his death on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it snapped in half the power of the evil one. It snapped in half his desire, his his power to carry out his desire to ruin God's good plan, God's good creation. But Christ, this lamb, can open the seals and thereby open the scroll. Christ's work is what gave him all authority to do God's plan, to carry out God's saving and judging work. He had been slain, showing his crucifixion. He was truly dead to atone for our sins. He had seven horns, probably you picture something like seven ram's horns. Again, number seven there just saying, he was all-powerful. That's what you should come away with when you see these seven horns. And the seven eyes, he sees everything. So this passage simply tells us Jesus is omnipotent. He has all power. And He's omniscient. He sees all things. He knows all things. But this lion, or this lamb that was bloodied was standing. Do you notice that as we read verse 6? Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This lamb was resurrected. Jesus is not in the grave anymore. He did truly die for your sins. And He was truly buried, but He did truly come out of the grave. This is crazy that we as Christians believe that a true man died and came back to life. But we believe it with all of our hearts. Our hope is fixed on this truth that the Lamb is standing. He took the scroll. That means that He has all authority. That means that He is the sovereign ruler over all things. And so, Christians, I want to remind you, it is good for us to be involved socially and politically, to be very active. There is nothing wrong with this. But let us not pretend or speak or act as if we control the events or the destiny of the world by whom we elect or by whom does not get elected. The future, the control of events, the destiny of the world is not in the hands of men. It's not in the hands of women. It is in the hands of God and of the Lamb. And no dictator or president or tribunal or court or board can change that reality. 
And so we put our hope in this slain lamb. And that's what people, when they saw this slain lamb, did. Verse 9, they sang, these angels, these elders fell down. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. That just means that he purchased people. He purchased us by his blood. And he did this for people from every group of people in the world. And this is a reminder of why racism is so evil. Whether it's between Chinese and Japanese people, or whether it's between white people and black people, or whether it's between one tribe of people in the jungle of Peru and another tribe of people in the jungle of Peru. Whoever racism is between, it's an arbitrary way of saying, I'm better than somebody else. The passage says, absolutely not. Jesus died for people from every tribe. Racism isn't evil because our government tells us we shouldn't be racist because they put on the back of football helmets and racism. Fine, say those things. Racism isn't bad because it's one sinner sinning against another sinner. It's because we are defiling the image of God when we are racist toward one another. It's because we are saying, I think I'm more worthy of whatever it is that we think it is than that person, because I am, for whatever arbitrary reason, better than that other person. And this passage says, no, Jesus died for people from every tribe and language and tribe and tongue. So I'm not going to assume that I'm better than somebody else on some arbitrary basis. You see these angels singing with a loud voice. You're seeing seeing every creature eventually in verse 13. Perhaps you notice the progression here of who sings praise to God. Going back to to the middle of chapter 4 or so, the chorus just gets louder and louder. The group of people singing you are worthy gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So maybe you notice first it's the four living creatures. Just four creatures. Then it's the 24 elders. Then it's the four living creatures with the 24 elders. Then it's many angels, like beyond comprehension levels, beyond countability. And then it's every creature in the universe. We often sing, all creatures of our God and King bow before Him. And the last verse says, then who shall bow before His throne? All creatures of our God and King. They're all turning their gaze toward God and celebrating Him. And again, this is why pride is so despicable. It celebrates someone other than God. Instead of our eyes being turned toward Him, we look inward. And we find in ourselves a characteristic that we think sets us apart. I am so much better than that person because of this characteristic. So much better than some other inferior human beings. This passage simply says, stop looking at yourself and start looking at the slain lamb and this majestic God seated in in power. You notice in verse 13 that God and the Lamb are completely equal. There isn't this kind of like, well, one's better than the other. No, they are worshipped in equality. They are celebrated in equality. The Father and the Son are both clearly here divine. Jesus is equal to the Father. They are worshipped together. But what about the Holy Spirit? Where is He in this passage? Maybe you notice these, again, the seven spirits. The Holy Spirit in all His power and glory. 
And the number seven there, again, is representing or expressing the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit doesn't get the attention in this passage. You probably noticed that. He doesn't get the attention that God the Father gets and that God the Son, the Lamb of God, gets. But that's on purpose. The Holy Spirit wants to shine the spotlight on Christ and say, look at the one who accomplished salvation. And so, the Holy Spirit is happy to put the attention elsewhere. Let me just have a little, if you were writing, this would probably be called an excursus. So in other words, this is kind of like disconnected in a sense. I think this is connected in the sense that we just talked about the Trinity a second ago, so I want to park on that idea for a second. Uh, someone asked me this past week, someone not in our church, just so you know, you don't have to start looking around. Someone asked me this past week, do you know what's all over the church today, but that's not in the Bible? How would you answer that question? Like, there are a thousand different directions you could go with a question like that. So I said, because I was short on time, I said, I'm not sure. Why don't you just tell me what you have in mind? And he said, the Trinity. And I thought, oh no. Like, this is, this is going to be a bad conversation here. And it basically was, but, uh, you know, you kind of lost me at this point where you, where you say that the Trinity's not in the Bible. And so I, I tried to register disagreement either by my facial expression or just be like, mm, or something like that immediately. Uh, but how had this person come to this conclusion? It sounded like, based on the way he described it, he was kind of trying to defend himself then of why he believed that the Trinity is not in the Bible. What he was doing is he was taking one of the least clear passages in the Bible and using that as the grid by which he applied, by which he understood everything else in the Bible. And church, I want to tell you, if there is one principle that I can hammer into your head today and every single Sunday when I preach to you, of how to read the Bible, it is this. Interpret less clear passages in light of the more clear passages. Not the other way around. When you do it the other way around, you can come up with all kinds of dangerous doctrines, like the one that this guy was telling me a few days ago. And so, again, read the Bible, read the most clear passages, and interpret the less clear passages in light of the more clear passages. So that was a problem right from the get-go. But that conversation also exposed the importance and usefulness of confessions of faith. Like this guy by saying, eh, the Trinity's not in the Bible. And I'll show you why. And he tried to show basically by one verse. What he was doing was he was saying, 2,000 years of church history, flush that away. We don't need anything that anybody else has ever said or written about the Bible. I have it figured out. And I'm here to convince you that I have it right. This is bad. Sometimes... All you need to read is something like the Baptist Faith and Message. We have it on our website for your easy perusal. Sometimes it's a series of questions and answers in a catechism. Often we'll ask questions and you'll give the answers as part of our creedal confession each week. Sometimes it's in the form of a creed, like the one, the Nicene Creed, we used half an hour or so ago. Those documents, those historic documents that people have worked hard to make sure are biblically faithful and have been passed down for 1,500 years, 1,800 years in, some, years in some cases, those are like bumpers at a bowling alley. Imagine if at a bowling alley there was no such thing as gutters and no such thing as bumpers, and you rolled, and the ball just goes way off to the right or way off to the left into somebody else's lane. It's a good gift to us that there are actually 
gutters at bowling alleys. And it's even a better gift that there are also bumpers at bowling alleys. And creeds and confessions and catechisms and statements of faith like the Baptist faith and message are bumpers for us. They keep the ball within the lane so we don't go flying off the side and end up saying, God is, uh, or God the Father is God and God the Son is God, but God the Holy Spirit is not God. That's exactly what he told me. And so finally, this, this is a reminder of uh, this conversation I had, is a reminder of the necessity of latching onto a church where sound doctrine oozes out of the cracks. And so basically, explicitly and implicitly, you're being taught first-level doctrine at every turn, in our worship services, in our conversations, through the resources we provide, at our fellowship meals, and so forth. We're constantly checking each other on first-level doctrines and hammering these doctrines into our hearts all the time. So find a church where first-level doctrines are hammered into your heart and your soul. Find a church where second-level doctrines are treated as very important, but not the same as first-level doctrines. And find a place where third-level doctrines are taught and explained, but not mandated. End of excursus. Okay? Back to the text. I just wanted to make sure I took an opportunity to say, I really disagree if you think that there's not a trinity, okay? That God is not trinity, triune. There, that's on record now, in case you did not know that. The splendor and majesty of this passage reminds us of what the church across the world needs today. The beauty that this passage expresses to us reminds us of what the church needs. The church does not need flashier websites Bigger budgets and more beautiful buildings. Louder music with radio-worthy songs. The church needs a sober sense of the greatness of God. The church does not need the trendiest pastors. It's a good thing. The church does not need more professionalization. The church does not need the finest children's program you're going to find in the land The church needs to gain a vision of God and of the Lamb enthroned on high. The church does not need this or that or the other. The church needs a deep, abiding sense of the one who is and was and is to come. Wang Yi, the Chinese pastor who was arrested in the fall of 2018, concluded his very lengthy letter, which you can find online, concluded this letter to his church and friends and family with these words. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom, to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those 
who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. What would compel him to write this, to suffer like this? The truth that Jesus is the worthy Lamb of God who has all authority. Our Heavenly Father, may we bow before you today, wrapped in splendor and majesty and glory, and may we sing, Hallelujah, the Lamb reigns. Amen.